Morning, Christ City Church. Hey, uh, thank you for joining us this morning as we gather to remember God's promises to God's children, promises of joy and promises of liberation, promises of new life and new beginnings. I I pray that this weekend, it's been a glorious weekend, I pray that you've had a chance to take advantage of it and get outside a bit, Um, and I do pray that you have been able to both experience joy and celebration. Uh, We're celebrating a number of things this weekend. First, uh, across the nation, um, there is recognition of the celebration of Juneteenth. On June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers informed residents of Galveston, Texas, that President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing enslaved people in the southern states. Uh, Juneteenth is the celebration of the arrival of that news and that liberation that uh, came with it. Now, this was months after the conclusion of the Civil War, but it was two years after Lincoln had actually signed the Emancipation Proclamation, thus reminding us that the work of justice for African Americans, it continues, even as it did on that day, on that first Juneteenth. For on that first Juneteenth celebration, there were still states in the Union for which slavery remained legal, and justice remains elusive, even today, remains denied in so many ways, economic justice, Education justice, criminal justice, and others now 157 years after that first Juneteenth. As Pastor Rich Velotis notes, when U.S. slavery ended, Jim Crow took the baton. And when Jim Crow had run its leg, redlining had its day. When redlining grew weary, mass incarceration sprinted forward. Nevertheless, church, joy and celebration are powerful forces of resistance and justice seeking even in the face of ongoing oppression and the denial of dignity and i hope that as you and as your families and as your neighbors walk through this weekend and celebration even tomorrow that as you walk through these days that you will celebrate in some days that you will celebrate freedom gained and freedom anticipated Celebrating the liberation that has occurred and anticipating the justice that is still on the horizon and that will be secured by the hand of God and the work of those that pray and protest and advocate for the day when justice fully and finally rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So I pray that you celebrate that. And today we also celebrate Father's Day. Hey, what's up? Shout out to all the fathers, to all the dads in the room. What's up? Give yourselves a hand. Um, hey, hey, come on now, what's up? Um, now listen, dads, I want to say to you, today your family might celebrate you. They might, you know, they might take you out to lunch. They might grill a burger for you. They may call, kind of check in on you, see how you're doing. Dads, today, maybe you'll go do golfing today. I don't know, maybe you need golfers. If you do go golfing, take an extra set of socks in case you get a hole in one. What's up, dads? How my jokes going? You like it? Yeah, no, that's good. I'm here all day. However you celebrate, I want you to celebrate. You earned it. Because look, fatherhood isn't easy. It takes guts. Just like being an organ donor. No, you didn't. You feel that one? I kind of like that one, to be honest. <laughs> hey, dads, but you're up for it. Man, I'm wilting up here. You're up for it. Uh, despite what you think sometimes, dads. Father, oh, hey, what's up? Was that my son (laughs) capping on my jokes over there in the corner, bro? Seriously, dads, I do hope that you take some time for yourself today. I hope that you reflect on the ways in which uh, you are called to parent as a father. I pray that, that the unique ways that dads 
uh, get to reflect God's love and God's compassion to children in your home and to young people in your community. I pray that you continue to shed the broken and toxic forms of fatherhood that can hurt and that have hurt. And I pray that you experience the healing presence of God in the places where maybe your own father hurt you. I pray that you're gracious with yourself, dads. That you're gracious in the ways that we miss the mark sometimes. I pray that you hear from your heavenly father uh, that speaks to you, speaks to the things uh, on the hearts of so many dads. I pray that you hear the whisper of the Spirit saying to you, I love you, and I'm proud of you. So, dads, happy Father's Day. Amen. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for the dads and for this weekend. God, I do pray that as we move through this weekend, there's a lot for us to celebrate. There's a lot of things for which to be joyful. Uh, God, and that doesn't deny the, the areas of brokenness, the areas of justice that just continues to seem delayed and the ways that fathers as beautiful as they are can also be broken and God yet even still we can look to you in joy and celebration so spirit I pray that that even these moments here just now God that we would sense your spirit ministering to us I pray all this in the name of our heavenly father I pray this in the name of Jesus amen um, a few years ago <coughs> A few years ago, I'm visiting my family in Texas, and I'm doing like one of the most like Texasy things that you could do. I am driving a pickup truck down a country road after a West Texas thunderstorm. I, like I just feel like if I had like you know barbecue sauce on my like shirt or something, like I could, it just felt like the most Texasy thing I could do. It was just sort of at dusk, like it was getting really dark. You could see sort of a sliver of the sun as it set, and the scene out my window. It was just like idyllically West Texas. Um, it was you know ranches and like rolling hills, and it was autumn leaves, and it was kind of clear, but there were clouds in the sky because the rainstorm had just come through. Um, there was a hint of like purple and oranges and pinks as the sun sank low. And it was just, you know, just kind of this ideal. It was cool outside and it was like, you know, kind of getting crisp as the autumn can be. So I had the windows down and the heater on, which is really, I don't know, anybody else? It's like you do that. You're just like, oh, this is fantastic. Like the best of it's like winter's version of summer's version of having the ace, the window unit AC on high and the fan on medium. But I got the blankets pulled up because I don't want to be too cold. Anybody else? Is that just me? You know what I'm picking up what I'm putting down? Some of you for perfect. Thank you. Uh, others of you have central heat and AC. I don't. So I don't know what that's like. So I'm driving like I'm just this sort of this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm soaking it all in and all is right in the world. Now, my brother uh, Luke and my cousin Jojo, they're following me in a car behind, and I'm not really paying any attention to them. I'm just looking out, and I'm smiling, and, and I'm just enjoying sort of this moment, the, the, the experience of it all. I'm doing my best to savor it. And then, and then the road kind of dips down, and the next thing I know, without warning or notice, I'm plowing into what looks like a small pond that has formed in the lower part of the road after this rainstorm has come through. And water just like, it overtakes the truck, splashes on the windshield. I can't see a thing. And then I begin to hydroplane. And I'm losing consistent control of this truck. And I wasn't speeding because I don't do that. That's wrong. But the speed limit was 55, and I was going every bit of it when I plowed into this small lake. And I start to slide like from 
one side of the road to the other. And I can see like the, the barbed wire fence is like getting close to me and then receding as I'm just skating, man. And I am out of control. I mean, I've got the steering wheel and I'm like turning it, but the truck isn't exactly behaving me. And, you know, if you, but I did know enough to know that if you're hydroplaning, you don't hit the brakes. You hit the brakes, that's bad. I feel like there's a life metaphor. You're in the midst of chaos, don't stop, just keep going. And that's what I did. Finally, the truck sort of makes it through like late chaos and like shimmies forward and I ease up and I kind of pull off the side of the road. I climb out and man, I'm shook. Like I'm shaking. I can't hardly stand. I'm like, oh my gosh, what just happened? And my brother and Jojo, they're like watching from behind a safe distance away. They kind of creep up. They ease through the water unscathed and they get through the puddle and they pull up next to me in the car. And I will never forget what Jojo says to me. He says, man, I never squeezed my b-hole so tight as I did watching you skate all across the road, man. I thought that truck was going to flip, man. I thought you was gone. I said, yeah, me too. Because see, the thing is, like one minute, you can be cruising down the road watching the Almighty paint the sky with his magic paintbrush of, culture, of, of color, and then the next, you can be faced with the fact that you've got no control over the things in your hand, and the next minute, all of it, colors and the chaos and the recovery, you can realize, well, all of that was under God's control too. And I was just trying to get from point A to point B. You see, for the past few weeks, we've been facing some of the lies that we have been told, lies that we've told ourselves, lies that others have told us, lies forced on us, and then lies that we have embraced willingly. We've heard, we've had to come face to face with the history that, that all lies have their origins in our great enemy, the one that Jesus described in John 8 as the father of lies, the one that Jesus said, when he lies, speaking of the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language because he is the father of lies. And we've examined and interrogated these lies, and as we've interrogated them, our chief aim has been to match these lies with the truth because the antidote to a lie is truth, but not like a propositional or a theoretical truth, but a gospel truth, a good news truth. And one of the points that we've consistently uh, returned to in this series is that when we match a lie with the truth, we're, we're not matching lies with simple words, but rather with a person. We want to consider Jesus' presence in the face of the lies that we believe and the lies that we participate in and the lies that we have trouble undoing. We want to see the clarifying and disinfecting work that the power and presence of Jesus exercises on the lies that we battle so that we might be freed from them. In our opening week, Andrea reminded us that we believe some lies, some lies, they have entire systems and structures constructed around them in an attempt to further the oppressive aims of that lie. Andrea shared honestly and personally about what it's been like for her as a woman of color in a profession, pastoring, that has historically been dominated by men. And growing up in the denomination that was birthed in white supremacy, as so many predominantly white Christian denominations were, and the ways that those lies of patriarchy and racism needed the Spirit's liberative, exercising ways of Jesus. And not like white Jesus, but 
but the Jesus that is found in scriptures, the Jesus that understands the plight of the marginalized, the Jesus that knows something of the oppression of empire, the Jesus that heals and frees and welcomes and restores and honors. Last week, Lisa led us in stripping bare the lie that we are not enough. Lisa led us in staring down the soul-crushing lie that we so often whisper to ourselves that our culture and that our culture shouts to us that who we are and that what we are and that what we do and that our presence and our existence and our experience and our effort and our personhood and our offerings to the world are not enough. Yet the Spirit reminds us through the simple story in Scripture of a young one who brought a few fish and a few loaves of bread and placed them over into the hands of Jesus and discovered that it was enough for thousands. And as it is with fish and loaves, so much more is it with our own lives that when placed over into the hands of Jesus, not only are we enough, but we are more than enough because Jesus is enough. And today I want us to interrogate the lie that we are in control. As 21st century Americans, we, we occupy a unique space in history, this unique moment when it comes to the control that we have over our lives. The modern advances in science and medicine and technology that have allowed us as a people and as a culture to exercise dominion over our own lives and our natural world in ways that would have seemed unimaginable centuries ago. Access that we have to information, we have the transportation, the abilities to gaze into the stars and the quasars and then also to gaze down into cells and atoms. It's the stuff of science fiction generations ago and now we can access it with something that we call phones that reside in our pockets. And any challenge that we face in our world or in our lives, it's met with a, with a get-it-doneness that such access to control is fostered in us. And I think this phenomenon is supercharged in contemporary American life. I lived in the California Bay Area for a while with its influence from the Silicon Valley, and that contributed to the climate and the belief that there wasn't an obstacle that didn't have a corresponding technological solution. A city like Chicago, with its rich history, it's called the city with broad shoulders, that whatever challenge life throws at you, then grit and determination and hard work and maybe a railroad can kind of help you get, get it uh, move forward. New York City, if you can make it there, you make it anywhere. The song and much experience tells us. And here in D.C., a city with a storied and checkered and violent past, a city who wears its heroes on its street signs, Banneker and Barry and Lafayette and Wallenberg and Washington, but one that sees its residents, all of them, guiding a nation forward. It fertilizes the belief that we're in control, that we have control that we have control of our lives and that we have control of our circumstances. Whereas societies in the past, they felt bound by some sort of fate outside of their control. Our access to individual freedom and individual empowerment and overall innovation has perhaps grown us overly confident in our ability to make things happen and less concerned with whether or not we're making the right things happen. We've drunk so deeply of the lie that we are in control that we've become like the children of Babel 
who looked to control their natural and built environment so ruthlessly that they looked to build a tower in order to, as the scriptures say in Genesis 11, to make a name for themselves. As with so many lies, the lie of control is not totally a, tr- a lie. It's, part- it's partially true. The level of control or perceived control that we have over our life and lives and life circumstances, it has deposited in all of us a confidence that certainly has its place and its benefits when facing challenges. Part of our image of God quality is that we do have agency over our lives. We do indeed have a measure of control that God gives us and requires that we steward it. And yet the temptation is to elevate this good thing, our control and our agency, and elevate it above what God intended, to to elevate it to the level of belief that our control supplants God's control. When Andrea began the series three weeks ago, she began in Genesis 3. It's the story of humanity's fall to the lies of the enemy. We began there because it's the place where all lies began, including this one. There's this phrase in Genesis 3 and verse 5 that captures the temptation of control. The enemy says to the first humans that they will be like God. And when it comes to control, I think the enemy might actually whisper to us that if anything is going to happen in our lives, it will happen because of our effort. It will happen solely because of our work, our education, our hustle, and and our connections. The, The whisper that says that one's control, that one's relationships, that one's life outcomes, that one's glory, one's health, one's finances, that everything that is to encapsulate one's life rests solely and exclusively on one's control of one's life Well, that's simply another way of saying you are in control of everything and that you can be like God, the one who is, in fact, in control of everything. In the passage that we read earlier from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching on a hillside in the region of Galilee. It's in the middle of his longer sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks to us about about worry most directly, but, but I think that we can see in his counsel to us something of a response to the temptation to believing that we are solely in control. Jumping into the passage in Matthew 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life or what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Jesus is calling us uh, to not worry about the things in our lives that we most often aim to control because they're the very things that lead to the number of days that we would live and to the wealth of the days of our lives. Jesus names food and drink and clothes. He names the very things that will provide nourishment for us. He names the things that we drink. Our bodies are 60% water, so what we drink is quite important. He notes that we have care for what we will wear, our clothes, the things that most immediately protect us from the elements. Jesus sums it up in the beginning and noting that we will worry essentially about our lives and our life. Jesus is acknowledging the centrality of these needs and how their absence or their scarcity will stir in us worry. Is not this the reason why we seek to control the thousand different areas of our lives? Because we seek to either lengthen the number of days in our lives or deepen the quality of those days. 
and the lack of control of those things, the uncertainty that can surround the days and the seasons and the moments of our lives that produces in us untold worry. This is precisely why we seek power in the different spheres of our lives. It's why we seek success and influence and affirmation and control and approval. It's why we chase after comfort and all of it in an effort to enlarge our control over our lives, over what we will eat and drink and where in the most literal and in the broadest and richest senses of those words. There's an, there's an honest, primal pursuit of the things that will give us life and longevity. Jesus isn't, he's not like condemnatory here. He's not, you know, chastising anybody. He's not chastising the first hearers nor us for the natural and normal desire to have control of our lives. Again, human agency is a gift from God that is a godly part of how we display the image of God in our lives. But what Jesus is wanting to correct in the lives of the hearers is the lie that they are the sole providers of those gifts needed for life. What Jesus wants to do here, he wants to, he wants to lift our gaze beyond our sense of control. Jesus wants to move us to a place of faith in the one who is truly in control and help us see that that is actually to our good. He wants to lift our chins to see beyond ourselves and recognize that God is the one that is in control, both of the quantity and the quality of our lives, because, because of that we can rest in God's provision and in God's providence. Verse 28, he says, why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. That's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Earlier in this same passage, Jesus says, look at the birds. They don't sow or reap, yet God feeds them. Jesus is pointing... And the beauty of creation, which God cares passionately about. And he calls us to note the ways that God provides for the birds and the flowers. And in case the point is still lost, Jesus says it outright in verse 27. Are you not more valuable than birds? And then he repeats it in verse 30. Will he not much more clothe you? Jesus cares more about the things that you are seeking to control because he cares about you more, much more. And listen, I know that there are those of us in the room and those that are joining virtually on the stream that are facing very real threats to the number of days that you may have and to the quality of those days. Some of you are facing down health challenges, meeting with doctors and specialists or wrestling with insurance companies so that you can meet with a doctor or a specialist. You're having to sit with hard choices and it feels like the control that you have over your future, it's slipping out of your hands. I know that some of you are facing some difficult employment and financial challenges. Doors have been closed and money's been hard to come by. Some days it feels like you have no control over hiring managers or financial futures. And I want to say to you that, that you're not alone in those seasons, that, that Jesus' words in Matthew 6, they weren't to wealthy or financially, they weren't to like a wealthy or financially stable middle class. He was speaking to those whose futures had a grim hue to them. Subsistence farmers and shepherds, fellow carpenters and small shop owners, 
People whose futures hung in a daily balance. This is the same group of people that just moments before he taught them to pray for daily bread. Yet what Jesus is saying is that God is trustworthy. In these passages, Jesus is pointing out that God cares for things in creation, lilies of the field and birds of the air. And if God gives attention and provision to those things, then God can be trusted with your future as well. Because God cares more for you than he does for grass. This isn't to say that God doesn't care for grass, for grass lovers in the audience. In other places in Scripture, Jesus would point out the ways that God had come through in the past. Ways that God rescued uh, the people of Israel from bondage. Times where God rescued children from lion's dens and from giants. Ways that God made ways through wildernesses and famine and brought them out the other side. God is trustworthy in the moments where we find ourselves now with the less control that we have because he has proved himself trustworthy throughout human history. But not just that, we also know that we can trust God with our lives because God proved most trustworthy in Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Because it is death that we are all working to control or contain, and it is death that Jesus exercised ultimate control over by taking it onto himself in the cross and liberating himself from it in the resurrection, and thereby extending to all of us life in him, abundant life and eternal life. Let me say, though, I I realize that I've just spent a bulk of my time Reminding a room full of like hard-charging, experienced, street-savvy, educated hustlers like yourself that you don't have control, but that God has control. And you might find yourself like, well, okay, well, fine, then sort of intellectually swinging the pendulum to the other end and going, okay, well, if I'm not in control, then I'll handle whatever fate throws at me. And this isn't your control on the one hand and some form of fatalism on the other. That's not the binary that Jesus is positioning in Matthew 6. There is work for you to do. Verse 33, he addresses it straightway. But seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. There is work for you to do. There is agency for you to agent. There is effort. I lost my word. There is effort for you uh, to exhort, exert. You control you. There's work for you to do. Jesus is inviting us to participate with the God of the universe, the God who controls the universe, and to collectively, collaboratively move Uh, the universe and our piece of it in the direction of God's kingdom. This is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God, to seek its expression in your life and to work for its manifestation in the world. Seek God's righteousness in your life, in your relationships, and seek God's justice. Remember that righteousness and justice in the Bible are the same word. They go together. So seek God's justice in the community and in our neighborhoods. Celebrate it when you see it. Fan it into flame when it looks fragile. Seek these things and seek them first. 
It isn't fatalists to believe that God is in control of the world or of our lives, and neither does it deny the agency that God longs for us to steward for the sake of God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. There's a, just to finish out my time, there's a song as I've been thinking through Matthew 6. There's a song that's been rattling around in my head as I've wrestled with this text and with this message. It's African-American spiritual that was popularized by Mahalia Jackson and Marian Anderson. It's a simple song, but it captures the deep truths of Matthew 6. It's a song that I think can help us find our way out of the lie that we are in control and keep us from the fatalism that can stifle our pursuit of God's kingdom. I think you might know it. He's got a whole world in his hands. You guys know that song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. The other stanzas, they remind us that he's got the wind and the rain in his hands. The storms of life, those are held in the hands of the Almighty as well. Other stanzas continue, he's got the little bitty babies, those ones that can't do for themselves, he's got them in his hands too. Says he's got you and me, brother. Got you and me, sister, those ones that are closest and nearest to us, they are held in the hands of God. Got everybody in his hands, those that are farther from us. That there is nothing that is outside the hands of God. Perhaps the spiritual practice for us coming out of today as we move through this week is to sing to ourselves and to each other and to the circumstances that we are facing and to the world that is beautiful and broken and sing to the Lord. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. 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 God, I pray that we would live into that truth. That we would recognize that we have agency, that we are to steward for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of righteousness and justice to be put on display in our lives and in our world. God, I pray that when we forget that you would, by the power of your spirit, bring those words back to our mind. Let us not escape it until it finds its way into our heart. God, I pray that you would guide us into it that you would lead us forward. I pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.